0: To Canaan's land, I'm on my way, where the soul of man never dies. My darkest night shall turn to day, where the soul of man never dies. We just sang that song, and what a powerful sentiment's in it. What a very encouraging and enthralling sentiment, in fact. And you and I have so joyously sung that song. That was the opening verse, in fact, of that most recent song we sang. It's good to see everybody here today. The opportunity of worship coming every first day of the week, and aren't we delighted for that. You may have already heard a number of those announcements and, of course, many activities coming up and also gospel meetings in addition to those things. And furthermore, many families suffering with illnesses and otherwise. But you and I have been blessed this day to gather in the way that we are. Keeping Up Appearances, the title of the lesson this morning. I hope that you'll keep your Bible open to that text in 2 Corinthians 4. In a moment, we'll in fact reflect on a passage that goes along with it. These introductory thoughts on this next slide begin like this. You may appreciate with me very strongly that the blessing of Christianity, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 12, does come with responsibility. That is to say, there are demands, expectations that God has put before us, and the Word of God unfolds those that are very dramatic and also in a very directed way. The middle of that slide begins to at least point us in the direction of the lesson today. May I phrase it like this. One's appearance. That is to say, the particular choices that you or I may make, in which others view and see us, do those matter in the eyes of God? Well, those appearances, as you and I shall find, not only do they matter, but God expects certain things of us. And this lesson today is hopefully a reminder that all of us will choose to live every single day in a way such that our appearance is becoming of what God would have it to be. Let's begin then that lesson in the following way. The next slide, quite frankly. And let's revisit that lesson text that Joe read just a moment ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 11. As Paul addressed these comments to the church in Corinth, you and I have already learned that in that first letter, there were some rather directed things that they needed to improve and to change in light of the fact they had done that. This verse says, and I'll start reading in verse 10 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, "...always bearing in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body." For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. The opening statement on that slide asks you and I to consider this. When others look upon you or me, when they perceive or see you or I, what should they conclude? What should they see? Well, you'll notice I phrased it like this based on a verse like this one, "...we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Christ might be made manifest in our mortal flesh." As Paul could make that statement of himself as an apostle, "...when others see me," he affirmed they need to see Christ. When others see Randy, and you can put your name in that slot, do they see Christ?" Do they see in one who is striving with impression and with dedication to present that which the Lord would find presentable and to choose not to do what the Lord would condemn? That's a good question. It's an ever-challenging one as well. Look over to the next chapter and notice how that's amplified this way. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Who are you living for? What are you living for? And that question is as meaningful to me, of course, as it is to anybody else. Who are we living for? That text says, the love of Christ constrains us, and if He died for all, then all owe Him something. We ought to live the way He says we should. We ought to live in a way that's befitting of His cause. And if we're Christians, we certainly are making that claim. Is it such that verse 15 says, Am I living to Christ? Am I living for Him? As we're about to see, that has implications for the impression, the appearance that you and I set forth. Maybe it is in that regard. Let's finish that slide with these observations. May I call to your attention that in the 1st and 2nd Corinthian epistles, Paul had much to say about the implications of this appearance. So much so that may I ask you to notice that middle passage. A text that I might invite you to note with it is 1 Corinthians 6. Verse number 19 and 20 reads like this, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We can begin to see the development, can't we? Namely, you and I as Christians... We walk as we claim by the teaching of the Holy Spirit and that Word dwells in us. And verse 20 says, don't you realize then, you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body, glorify God in your mind, both of which belong to God. Again, the question, am I doing that with my appearance? The impression that I make before others, is that a hallmark of Christianity when others see that About me, do they think Jesus? The kinds of things we're about to discuss today then are an ongoing and constant set of decisions. Let's close that slide. And notice the human body as God has fashioned it, you and I know so well how majestic, how beautiful, how impressive in so many ways, the capability, sheer capability of it. And yet, Isn't it true that the appearance of that is something that is closely monitored in the New Testament, in fact, throughout the Word of God? The observations, beginning on the next slide, are then some developments based on the Word of God concerning these matters. Could we first of all make this rather immediate conclusion? First, first. The appearance that you or I make, it has to start from within. In fact, the appearance I make is only a manifestation of what really is in my heart. If my heart isn't right with God, that may well emanate then into various poor choices on my appearance, including clothing or otherwise. But on the other hand, one whose heart is right, one whose heart is directed as it ought to be, well, then at least with clarity and certainly not out of anything deliberate, that person will make choices that are wise in this regard. Let's develop some of those thoughts like this. Where is your heart and mind? I'm going to ask you to notice a few of these verses with me. We are encouraged to seek God with all of our hearts. Psalm 119, verse number 2. To seek God with all the heart. That again means everything I relinquish to Him. If He says it, that's good enough for me. I will choose to do what He says. I will choose not to do what He says not to. Those kinds of choices seem so simple. And yet, how powerful, how appropriate, how needful. Could I ask you to appreciate Matthew 6.33? That's a verse you and I have often reflected upon. It addresses so many attributes of life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. May I suggest that seeking first the kingdom of God means placing in high priority, in fact, in absolute priority, that which is the will of God, touching everything, including my appearance, including what I choose to do in terms of impression before others. How will others then hear me talk tomorrow? What do you think? Now on Sundays, it's quite likely I'm going to be more guarded, more careful in the things I choose to say. But what about tomorrow? I'm at work and these people don't go to church services. In fact, they don't seem to have much interest in the Bible. Maybe I don't have to watch as closely. Friend, that's not so. God's watching you every bit as much tomorrow as He is right now. Jesus is just as mindful of what you and I are doing tomorrow as He's mindful of what we're doing now. And in fact, it may well be that the speech I choose to use tomorrow could have a tremendous influence. Somebody listening may well then say, well, if that's what a Christian talks like, I talk that well. You may be building a barrier and that person will never be reachable by the gospel of Jesus Christ because of your poor example. You're poor influence. But it's not only what one may choose to say. Where might someone else see you go tomorrow? Are you going to visit any place that's unbecoming of a Christian? Are you going to be found and seen in a place that would not be befitting of a person devoted to Jesus? Appearances mean something. It's no wonder that influence, as it's presented in the Word of God, is so very far-reaching. And for a Christian... May we say there are few things more far-reaching than that. You've seen it in these verses. We bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus. May we never bring reproach on the cross of Christ. May we never conduct ourselves by speech, by language or otherwise, so that we cast a dark spotlight on the very one who died for us. In Revelation 1, verses 5 to 7, It is there said that even those who pierce the side of Christ with that sword, they're going to see Him when He comes. That's going to be true of you and me too. On this slide, you may notice, then the guarding of the heart is where all of this starts. We all knew that, of course, but it's refreshing to hear Jesus talk about it. Would you visit with me Matthew chapter 15? In that text of Matthew 15, Jesus spoke much about this sentiment that we're now discussing. As you can see on that slide, I'm going to ask that we begin reading in verse 17. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 17. "'Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth out in the belly, and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart.'" "...and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man." And it's likely that that discussion has often rested in our heart. Here were these Pharisees and said, "'Jesus, don't you know your disciples didn't wash their hands?' Don't you know that that's not right with God? They've defiled themselves and the Lord entered into this discussion and impressed upon them. It's what comes out of the heart. Ultimately starting in the heart because that's what leads to all of these other things like adulteries and fornications and evil speakings. But what goes in by way of unwashed silverware hands, that doesn't defile the man. And so tomorrow, what you and I let emanate out of our heart, cast in the form of language, the places we visit, the clothing we choose to wear, all of that is an open book read by one and so many others. And it's going to be a testimony about who is the Lord of His life? Is it the devil or is it Jesus? Who's the one directing His thoughts and His speech? Is it the devil or is it Jesus? And the choice is yours and mine. May we keep up appearances. And may I say that God will work through us, using our life as an instrument for so much good. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, there's an example in the Old Testament I felt useful to consider. What about Ezra? In Ezra chapter 7, verse number 10, this description is given of the life, of the purpose, of the deliberate choice of Ezra. It was stated of him that he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Notice the word prepare. He didn't live in a happenstantial way. He didn't live accidentally. He made a determination every day, preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to manifest it in the way he lived his life. Is that true of me and you? If it isn't, we need to make a change, you know. We need to repent we need to start making wiser decisions. We need to make other choices because the current pathway I'm walking is headed to hell. It's just that simple. Jesus doesn't look upon lightly that circumstance of someone who claims to wear His name but then doesn't live deliberately in that way. They're one way on Sunday or Wednesday, but they're hypocrites the other times. Now, I freely... Admit that we may make mistakes, and we may in fact falter, but if I'm living every day deliberately, hypocritically apart from God, we all know where, that's, where the end result of that's going to be. Jesus told all of those who were His followers, and I would ask you to reflect on this text in John 6 with me. The Lord had just taught a very harsh lesson so harsh that many had chosen to walk away from him. And Jesus said, will you also go away? Now at that point, consider what options were there. The Lord could have said, well, okay, maybe the lesson was too hard. Let's soften it down a little bit. The Lord didn't do that. You see, you cannot compromise the truth. If I choose not to live by it, and if I make my appearance what it ought not be, it isn't the Lord's fault. I'm the one that's faltered. This opening lesson has then been a question about my heart and yours. Am I directed by, dedicated to, and absolutely in harmony with the teaching of the Word of God? And is my heart directed that way? Observation number two will then be this one. I realize that there might be some in our world who might tell us, it doesn't really matter about your image, it's only a matter of your heart. Well, it's true that we've talked about the heart, and we've highlighted how important that was, and how important that is. But might we say, it is important for us to consider, what impression is there? Let's develop some of that point like this. In Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, I... I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Question Who's the one living? Paul said, I died. Christ is living in me. Is that true of you? Be honest. Are you investing portions and aspects of your life directed in a way that you know the devil is rather pleased with, but Jesus not so much? Because it sets before perhaps others a stumbling block, or it's a choice that is highlighting something that's maybe secretive, maybe that's not wholesome. You've got to keep up appearances because God's always watching. We can't hide from Him. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs fifteen three. This issue of critical image. I've called your attention, Romans 15. Would you please look with me at verse 3 of that chapter? Romans 15, verse number 3. This is admittedly near the close of that Roman letter, but on that occasion, Paul said this. For even Christ pleased not Himself... But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Jesus didn't just go about doing that merely which is what He wanted. He says He didn't merely please Himself. What about you? Have you and I made choices? Well, I don't really care what anybody else thinks. They can think whatever they want to. A Christian isn't privileged to allow that viewpoint. To be the case. We must not live in a way that calls into question and puts a stumbling block before somebody else. Whether by things I say, places we go, things that we may choose to do. If others are watching, didn't Paul himself say, if it caused my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat until the world stand no longer? 1 Corinthians 8.13. He was so concerned about the encouragement and the welfare of brothers and sisters, others, that He would not purposefully or deliberately cause them to stumble in any way. The influence, the vitality, the image in Christianity is that critical, isn't it? Not only that, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 16, back to that same chapter, or at least right after it we had noted earlier, listen to this passage. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does that describe me and you? Do I have concord with Belial? Am I so conducting myself that I'm obviously a friend of the world? Because James said, if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. Now the current culture in which we live, this is clearly a challenge, but it's not only so now, it has ever been this way. Because the devil wants us to live like the world. He wants us to be friends with it, to be those adopted by it, and to live in a way in which we pose no challenge to it. But as Christians, we cannot live that way. We've got to be unique. Our appearance has to obviously be that which is directed unto God because we are Christians. That word is so penetrating. C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. That's what I am. It's what you are. Christian means I'm living like Christ tells me to. I'm living like He wants me to. I am an open and clear representative of His. I put that near the bottom of that slide or on that previous slide because that word representative is a strong word, isn't it? Think about what's involved. If somebody comes to you and asks, I am not able to be at a certain place and I need a representative to represent me there. Would you go and do that for me? And if you and I agree, we understand what that means, then I am representing what the interests of that individual are. I'm taking his place. I'm speaking on his behalf. And yet you and I are representatives of Christ, aren't we? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts 11, 26. And you and I remember later in the New Testament, that as Christians, we are those which represent Christ. It is for that reason. The bottom of this slide now comes before us. You and I can't hope to influence to a higher degree of morality and ethical behavior those around us if they see in us the same things the world is encouraging. How would anyone ever believe that if I'm living like the world, talking like the world, dressing like the world, doing the things the world does, and then hear me say what the world's doing is wrong, then that's obviously hypocritical. And it will have no power in the lives of anybody that you or I may influence. And so again, the question, what about my appearance and yours? When others look upon you and me by way of our speech, our conduct, are they seeing... A Christian, May they ever see it. A person devoted and dedicated to Christ. And this second part of our lesson today highlights it. And we close that slide this way. You and I are a possession purchased by Christ. He owns me. I belong to Him. And therefore, am I behaving as He would have me to? Lesson number three. This body you and i realize that when others look upon us surely one of the things that they perceive immediately relates of course to this body let's develop this point like this and it has a great deal to say again from first corinthians chapter 6 as marvelous and as great as this body is it is not a public spectacle in the sense that the attributes of its physical character are to be highlighted That's not why God made it. That's not why He gave it the characteristics that He did. I've asked you to consider verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 6. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Throughout this lesson so far, our emphasis has been on keeping up appearances. And so again, this one is more directed. What about the clothing I choose to wear? Is it becoming and befitting of a Christian? Or has it gone astray in light of failing to be in harmony with some of these things that we've learned so far? First, as my heart's directed to God, my clothing should fall under the character of what He approves. The body, it says in verse 13, is not for fornication. Am I dressing in a way that, quite frankly, is more encouraging of fornication than condemning of it? And remember, fornication, ultimately, is this act illicit sexual activity, if you please? And am I dressing in a way that makes somebody else think that way? Honestly, does how I dress encourage lust in somebody else? If that's true, I'm sinning. If that's true, I am guilty of sin. Now, they are too, I admit. But if I have been an encourager of it, I'm guilty of sin. Every one of us have got to think pretty carefully. Not only that verse, look two verses later. Verse 15, a rhetorical question is asked. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. The question is direct, isn't it? Am I choosing to wear what would be befitting, becoming, appropriate, and such that never ever would I encourage any thought of lust in the mind of somebody else? These kinds of observations in our present world in many, many cases, are far removed from the norm of the day. We by and large are living in a time when wear what you want, whatever you want, because anybody has a problem with it, it's their problem and not yours. And that's just not biblically so. If I'm you wearing what God disapproves and I am at fault, I'm guilty of sin. And I have acted in such a way that the appearance that I am setting forth is not becoming of a Christian. It might be becoming of a prostitute, or it might be becoming of somebody whose mind is in the gutter, but it's not becoming of a Christian. And that, of course, is not befitting of what Jesus would have us to wear and to be. I say this because, again, what the norm of our day is so distinct and different from this... I know we live in a place, walk through Walmart, walk through another discount store, or even, yay, a place of entertainment a recreation. And often it's easy to see those who's directed toward actions in light of what they wear. Really, there's not much law there at all. They've just worn almost anything. And quite frankly, it's very vulgar. As you and I close that slide, as Christians, we are called to a higher echelon than this. The world doesn't dictate what we wear, Jesus does. The world doesn't dictate the specifics and the attributes of what we wear, Jesus does. And we always would want to wear what pleases Him. Sometimes the world might frown, why are you wearing that? When they're wearing nearly nothing, it would seem, and they say, well, I'm sure enjoying this... Don't you want to wear like this? I sure saw a nice bikini, you know, at the store the other day. And as a Christian, we'd say, I don't think my Lord would be happy with me wearing that. And I'm not going to wear it. You see, we've immediately left an impression that there is something to be said and not everything you wear is pleasing to God. And that there is a law He's got in place. Not only things like that. It's true, the primary viewpoint of many in our world is the physique. Display it all you want to, so often we're told, and you and I know that's not right. The Bible condemns nakedness, both Old and New Testament. Now you and I realize, especially in the light of the Old Testament, that's interesting because those people lived thousands of years ago and many in our day are under the impression that that was a very distant and ancient kind of society and they haven't advanced like we are. Well, that may be in many ways, but God still said it was wrong to dress nakedly. And one can still have clothes on and be naked because it doesn't conceal anything. It doesn't hide anything. And so it is. that The next lesson on our slide then is this one. We've got to be careful and ever choose our clothing and the other attributes of our appearance in such a way that it bears the mark of godliness. This book never changes. The same dictates for living in Corinth 2,000 years ago are the same things that dictate how to live in Cookville today or how to live, in fact, 25 years from now if the world stands. This book is never going to change. I might su- suggest we don't know how the evolution of human clothing may be. People may wear nearly nothing, if that's that's believable. They almost wear nothing now sometimes, but what may it be like in another 50 years? I don't know. But this much we all know. God will still demand that to be pleasing to Him, even then, one must not live like the world if the world lives that way. We serve a, a risen Savior. And he pointed to a world and said, You preach the gospel to them, because there's coming a day of judgment. And on this slide we now note this. In first Timothy chapter number two, I'd invite you to listen as I read this passage. Perhaps it's the plainest passage in the New Testament on the subject we're at least presently discussing. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, this is verse 9, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array. But verse 10 says, but which which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now as Paul described this particular, this feature about the kind of appearance... And it's true, he specifically noted women. But gentlemen, let me say, we aren't left out of this because let's look at some of the meanings of these words. This phrase, modest apparel, it's true, women are commanded to dress in such a way that's described as modest apparel. That word modest literally means that which is sensible, that which is decent by the definition of God. Now, you may appreciate that that is just as meaningful, frankly, for a man as it is for a woman. But it also should be noted that there's something about differences in the way God made men and women. Men tend to be much more visual than women. Men tend to be much more such that their imagination can race in particular directions based on visual amplification than a woman. And so when a woman chooses to dress immodestly... That is, revealing a lot of things about the body. It's no wonder that with direction toward that end, God said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Matthew five twenty-eight. Now you'll notice Jesus didn't state that from the other perspective because most of the time a woman is not visually oriented that way. I suppose she could be. So men, clearly we've got to be careful too, but ladies, you must wear what does not encourage lust in the mind of anybody else, except your husband. It's okay for your husband to look upon you in in a rather excited way, but nobody else. And therefore, when we proceed into public, we have to keep up our appearance according to God's definition. Look at the next word he used, shamefacedness. That again, taken from verse number 9. Women with modest apparel, he then says, with shamefacedness. That's an interesting word. That word shamefacedness, if I may define it, means one is capable of blushing. One is capable of appreciating there's a sense of shame with respect to certain kinds of clothing. We may be very frank about it. There's some things ought never to be seen in public. There's some clothing that is so skimpy, so inappropriate, so immodest, that in terms of this, the person wearing it should be covered in red because it ought to be shameful. And yet many have seemingly no shame about it. They're wearing it, they're parading it. That's not shamefacedness. You and I, in becoming what's godliness, ought to do much better and we're thankful for God's direction. Look at the third word, sobriety. That word literally means that which involves self-control and moderation. It doesn't matter if every other girl in school's wearing this. If it doesn't meet God's definition, I'm not going to wear it. That's what a Christian young lady ought to say. You see, she is controlled. She is able to moderately control that which she does. And she won't do it just because everybody else does. Of course, that's true of a lot of things in life. Every other boy may be doing certain things, getting cat tattoos or otherwise, but the one faithful to God will say, I won't do it. All of that leads us to appreciate, doesn't it, that keeping up appearances, God's watching us, and He's taking observation as well, isn't He? Our clothing says a great deal about where our heart is, and our appearance before others leaves a lasting impression. What kind of impression am I leaving? And what about you before others? As you and I close that slide, can't we again say this body and all that goes with it is not for fornication, but rather it ought to be directed in such a way that it's characterized by sobriety, shamefacedness, modesty, godliness, the stamp of God's approval. And it is, with that to be noted, you're at the bottom of that slide. Our admonition is to glorify God in our body and in our mind, both of which belong to God, 1, Timothy, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. As we close this lesson, this st- slide of conclusion is this. Every one of us then have a decision every day to make. When I stand before a mirror in the morning and I choose as I get out of the closet, the clothing I'll wear that day, does this speak positively about my example and influence as a Christian? Or does it call it into question? If it calls it into question, put it back immediately and choose something else. Choose what's befitting of modesty and shamefacedness and sobriety and choose what's befitting of leaving a lasting impression of goodness And godliness and honesty. For those reasons, we've learned those lessons you'll see near the bottom of that slide. May I say, let's keep up appearances as God has defined it. Today, our study has challenged each of us in contemplation of not only clothing, but the impression I leave before others. How am I doing at this? How about you? If you know that deliberate choices have caused others to see in you what you claim not to be, you claim to be a Christian, but they see somebody else, you've got to repent. And you need to let them know you've repented so that you can begin to leave an impression of goodness and rightness and hopefully influence them in the way of truthfulness. Today, if we could be of help to you, if you would wish to confess error in a public way in that light, It's not a shameful thing. In fact, Jesus would highly commend you for this. And we will wrap arms of encouragement around you. If you've never become a Christian, don't you want to live a life directed toward heaven? You're currently living in a way that you know you aren't washed of the blood of Christ. He died for you, but to this point you haven't applied it. Why do you wait? Sometimes we sing a song, Why do you wait, dear sinner? The blood of Jesus is waiting for you. If we could help you today in your response to the gospel, we'd love to do that. In fact, we would thrill at the thought of it, but we would invite you to come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.